You know, when we, uh, when we think about Revelation, um, oftentimes fear overtakes us because we think of fear of the Antichrist, fear of the Great Tribulation, fear of having to take the mark of the beast on our hands or forehead, uh, fear of, think, you know, all these things. And so it just kind of freaks us out. And so we avoid Revelation, which is unfortunate because Revelation was given to believers in the early church initially because, to give them hope and strength and encouragement as they're going through uh, life. It was really tough. And so we need it as well, but we tend to avoid Revelation because it, it makes us fearful. And it's unfortunate because this is a revelation of Jesus Christ, according to Revelation 1.1. It's not the revelation of Satan. It's not the revelation of the Antichrist or the dragon or the beast. It's not the revelation of the enemies of God, and yet we tend to highlight the enemies of God when we think about Revelation. We think of, oh, Revelation, that's all about the Antichrist. No, it's not. It's about the revelation of Jesus Christ who gives us hope. And some believe, though, we won't have to deal with any of these scary things because, after all, the church will be raptured out of here just in time before the Great Tribulation comes, and we don't have to deal with any of it, and so we don't even have to concern ourselves with Revelation because we'll be gone. I happen to, I happen to believe that won't be happening. Um, it could happen that way, but I'm under the conviction that uh, we're going to go through tribulation as the church always has gone through tribulation. In fact, that was the reason why it was written to the early church. As you're going through tribulation and persecution, continue to be overcomers, continue to persevere, because God is faithful. He's with you. And I believe that's a message for the church. In fact, I believe it was the message not just for some future events to take place, but it was a revelation for the church of every era. What must soon take place? This is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. When they first heard this revelation, they were thinking this is, these things are soon to take place, and in fact, they did. That word soon is used like eight different times, or it will happen quickly, like 12 different times in the, throughout the book of Revelation. But in order to overcome the beast and the fear of the beast or the Antichrist or the end time tribulation, um, we need to understand who the enemy is. And it occurred to me that I preached all the way through Revelation and I didn't give uh, due attention to the enemy of God. If we, we need to understand who the enemy is in order to be able to overcome this deceitful liar. Who is the beast? Well, Revelation 13, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. Revelation 13 talks about the dragon who stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea and I saw it had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard but had the feet like those of a bear and the mouth like that of a lion. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Well, this image comes directly from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 where Daniel was given a vision about four beasts. And uh, these four beasts in Daniel... They represented the four kingdoms that were coming, namely the kingdom of Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, and then Rome. 
finally. John's vision then of the beast in Revelation, like Daniel's, we can assume is also a kingdom. The beast is a kingdom, namely Rome, the fourth beast of Daniel, the Roman Empire. Now, let's unpack this first verse again. The dragon, who is Satan, um, he, he was waiting for the beast to come out of the sea. This out of the sea, um, the sea is the abyss, or from, from the depths of hell, this beast comes. It, it brings chaos. The sea brings chaos. And there were ten. Uh, the figure ten is used of power, power, especially governmental power. Like we have ten fingers, they're complete. Ten toes, it means complete power. These ten horns and ten crowns were complete governmental authority is what this beast had, this Roman Empire. Seven heads stood for the seven kings that would reign in Rome. The seven heads would also equal seven hills in chapter 17 where it says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which, which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. So when they heard about these seven heads, they thought of the seven hills, and when they heard about the seven hills, the people said, oh, that's Rome. Rome sits on seven hills surrounding it. But it's not just Rome. In verse 10 of 17, they are also seven kings who reign in this Roman empire. In 1710, of the seven kings of the Roman Empire at the time of John, five of them had fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, but when he does come, he must remain for a little while. Well, that's clear as mud. Well, who are these? Well, what would they have heard? They would have heard this. Five of them had fallen. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, under whose reign Jesus was born in a manger, and then Tiberius, under whose reign Jesus was crucified. Gaius, Claudius, those five kings have fallen. One is, namely, one is in power. That would be Nero, time of this writing. And then one, the other, is yet to come. But when he comes, he must remain only a little while. His name was Galba. He reigned only for six months after the death of Nero. And then he was assassinated. He was just a little while. They understood this. It wasn't a mystery to them. It wasn't for God to love the world that he gave us a crossword puzzle to figure out or a jigsaw puzzle. No, it was clear to them. The current beast then was Nero upon the reception of this revelation. Nero was a psychopath. He would have been the opposite of Jesus Christ as anyone could be. He was, in other words, an anti-Christ. The current beast... He burned down one-third of Rome, and he blamed it on the Christians in the year 64 AD. This same Nero married a young boy named Sporus and castrated him. He was very violent. He tortured others for pleasure, and I'm not even going to get into the graphic details of how he tortured them. He murdered his own family members, including his parents, his brother, his aunt, and his pregnant wife, whom he kicked to death. This was the current leader of Rome. Pliny the Elder, historian, referred to Nero as the destroyer of the human race and the poison of the world. Another historian in that day, Apollonius of Trana, mentioned Nero as the, a beast. Notice he said he's a beast. 
He said, in my travels, which have been wider than ever, every man yet accomplished, I have seen many, many wild beasts of Arabia and India. And of all these wild beasts, none were ever known to eat their own mother like Nero, who gorged himself on this diet. In other words, he saw Nero as the worst of all the beasts. And then we read in verse 5 of chapter 13. This beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Now many believe that this beast or the Antichrist is just a future figure who will be unleashes fury against uh, the uh, on earth in the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation, and it could happen that way, but that's not what these early hearers would have heard. But people say he can't be Nero, though, because Nero reigned for more than 42 months. He reigned for a total of 164 months. However, if you read the history, Nero began to unleash his persecution on the Christians in November of A.D. 64, and it ended upon his suicide A.D. 68 in June, or a total length of 1,260 days, or three and a half years, or exactly 42 months. But others would say, Nero, though, he's never been raised back to life after he received this fatal wound. Verse 3 of 13 says, One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. When, when he killed himself, he didn't come back to life. But remember what we talked about. The beast is not only the ruler but it's also the kingdom. The seven heads are the seven hills of Rome in 17.9. So after Nero's suicide, there were four successive kings that um, reigned in Rome. Galba, he reigned for a short time, six months or so, and then Oth Otho reigned for three months, and then Vitalius reigned for nine months, and then Vespasian and many believe that after Nero's death, that was the end of Rome. It was spiraling out of existence. It will no longer be the Roman Empire. It's dying. It's, this culture and empire is dying. But during Vespasian and then Titus following him, the eighth king, the emperor was revived. In other words, this Roman Empire was resurrected to new life during those days. Thus fulfilling this prophecy. They thought it was going to die from a fatal wound, but it had been healed. Well, there's not just one beast mentioned in 13. There's two beasts. The second beast is the beast out of the earth. This would have been a religious leader or a religious system. It would have been a voice speaking on behalf of the other world power, world system. It would have been a religious false prophet, if you will. And we read about this beast in verse 11. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast 
so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. The second beast looked like a lamb, externally looked like a Messiah figure, like Jesus, but on the inside, he spoke like a dragon, spewing off his lies and deceit, his violence and his arrogance and his blasphemy. In other words, he got his power from devil, the devil, Satan. This, this one forced people to worship the political beast or the political empire, which was anti-God. Sort of like in Babylon when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were having to bow down before the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, they refused to do so because they were followers of the one true God, Yahweh. And they refused to bow, and therefore they would have been killed and thrown into the fiery furnace and incinerated. Well, you know the story of how God rescued them. What makes this false beast in Revelation so deceptive is his charisma, his influence, and the lie to appeal to our sinful nature and our sinful gratification. He will give the world what it wants, what it longs for, to appeal to our sinful nature. And so we'll worship him, and we'll, anyone who gets in the way will encounter our wrath. And so we're told that we'll have to receive a mark or the number of the beast in verse 16. The second beast also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had this mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. In order to understand what this mark on the hand or the forehead means, we must first, again, understand what it meant to the original hearers. What is this number of the beast, 666 in verse 18? This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. The number is 666. What does that mean? Well, in John's day, they would have used... Uh, had an alphabet which would have coincided with the numbers sort of like our Roman numerals I is 1, V is 5 X is 10 100 would be C and on and on and so you take the number and the alphabet and you can figure out the number of a person's name if you will and so when um, they're called cryptograms or gematria Nero's name in Greek in Greek would have added up to 1,005. And so others would conclude, well, that can't be the mark of the beast then. He can't be the beast. If it adds up to 1,005, his name. But John, remember, was a political prisoner under the Greek Greco-Roman world. And when he sent out this revelation, he would have thought and heard the name in Hebrew. And so the name in Hebrew would have added up to 666. Neron Caesar, Nero Caesar, 666. And if that's not believable enough, a couple hundred years later, when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Latin, a guy named Jerome, uh, it was the Vulgate it was called, so that the people could read it in their own language, in their vernacular, when they translated it, they took the Hebrew name 666 for Nero and they translated it into Latin and it was 616, which means Nero Caesar in Latin. So even Jerome knew that the beast was Nero when he was translating it back into Latin. So was Nero 
and Rome the only beasts ever, or will there be future antichrist and beasts? And I would say that Nero and Rome are simply shadows and types of many antichrists, many beasts, many um, empires, ungodly empires in the future. Even according to John, who wrote Revelation, or who, who received the Revelation, even in John's letter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, written at about the same period, 1st John, he says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the, that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. These are the end times. There are Antichrists all over. And then chapter 4, it's mentioned four times in 1 John. Chapter 4 is another time. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. This was the early church before the year 100. There were many Antichrists. But will there eventually be one final Antichrist? Well, it's logical. There's got to be a final one, right? But there will be many, and have been many, leading up to that final one. Just as evil, just as satanic. Until then, though, any power structure, any leader that sets itself up against God and against his word, whether it be political, or whether it be economic, or whether it be educational, institutional, or whether it be religious or moral, any power that sets up against God is the spirit of Antichrist. It's something that opposes us. It's something that, wants, empowered by the dragon, wants to take Christians down. Well, this is the good part of my message, the last part. How do we overcome the beast and not take the mark of the beast? Well, first of all, we overcome the beast by taking the right mark. And then secondly, by the blood of the Lamb. Thirdly, by the word of the testimony. Everybody freaks out about this potential mark on the hand and forehead. Is it going to be like, you know, those numbers you see in grocery stores? Where you get scanned? Is it going to be a chip in the hand? Is it going to be the, the viral uh, vaccine that we take? and will infect us and be able to trace us? People thought it was hundreds of different things in the past. They've all proven to be wrong. What is this mark of the beast? Well, in order to understand the mark of the beast, you have to understand the counterpart in the book of Revelation, which is the mark of the Lamb, or the mark of God. How many have heard of that before? Isn't that interesting? We've heard of the mark of the beast, but we haven't heard the real reason for which Revelation was written, the mark of God, or the mark of the Lamb. Ephesians 1, it's biblical throughout the New Testament, and you were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The mark is something that you have right now if you're a follower of Christ. It's who you are. It's who you belong to. It's who you identify with. In the Old Testament, they were marked intentionally they marked themselves when they read the Shema everyone would 
memorize the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. This would have not been a mystery to those who heard the revelation. It means you are a person of God. You are a child of God if you're marked with the mark of God. And so the mark of the beast would have been the anti-Shema. It would have been the anti-mark of God. In 1316, we read about this mark of the beast who forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hands and on their foreheads. In verse 18, it clarifies, this calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate this number of the beast, for it is the number of man. In other words, 666 is the number of humanity. It's the trinity of sinful humanity. Man was born on the sixth day of creation, and when he fell, he said, I want to be my own God and lead my own life, and I don't want to submit to the one true God. I am number six. Seven is the number for God, right? Six is the number of fallenness. It's humanism. It's the attitude that we live in, the culture we live in. Those who have the mark of six on their head or hand are simply the ones who are saying, I refuse to bow my knee to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you are marked with his number, the mark of God, the mark of the Lamb. If a person is sealed with the mark of God, then by default, we are no longer have to fear the mark of the beast, now or some future day, because we are secure in him. Verse 12 of 3 says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in my temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God. Right after we hear about the mark of the beast in 13, the very next verse in chapter 14, Then I looked and I saw the Lamb on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. We looked at in past weeks, this 144,000 will be the people of God. 12 times 12 apostles, prophets, disciples, and tribes of Israel. And then chapter, chapter 9, they are told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If we have the seal of God on our foreheads, if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, we need not fear God's wrath or condemnation, present or future. Verse chapter 22, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. On their foreheads is a sign of identity, who we belong to, who we identify with, and who influences our thoughts. On the hand is a sign of authority, right hand, authority. What we pledge our allegiance to, our loyalty, our devotion, our worship, who influences our actions. If we're sealed with God, we're influenced by his thoughts and his actions. If we're sealed by the mark of the beast or not God, then we're influenced by the worldly values, the worldly thoughts, the worldly actions. Either way, we're marked by the beast or by the one true God. To whom are you marked? With whom, I should say, not to whom. With whom are you marked? This was the question in the book of Revelation. Who are you identifying with? It's that simple. And if we're sealed by the seal of God, then nothing can unseal us. We're told in Romans 8, 28, that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
not persecution, not death, not Satan, not the enemies of God. Nothing can separate us. As you're walking through difficult times as they were, these seven churches and churches ever since then, when we're walking through persecution, nothing can separate us because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God. He will remain with us. Nothing to fear. This is good news. Forget about the mark of the beast. It's not applicable to us. We overcome also by receiving the right mark of the God, but then secondly, by the blood of the Lamb. And just these two points are really short. Revelation 12, 11, they triumphed over the enemy of God by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. The blood of the Lamb simply means we won already at Calvary. Jesus died on the cross. He secured our victory. We're no longer condemned. We belong to him. He remains with us. And uh, whatever we go through, he'll strengthen us. He'll give us what we need. Fast forward to the end of the game, and we always win. If you take like a former Super Bowl of your favorite team winning the Super Bowl, and if you taped and want to watch it back during the pandemic because nothing else is playing, then you get all excited and it's so, so fun, but you know the end of the story. All the times, every time you watch it, it never changes. We know the end of the story because we have revelation and the promise of, of Jesus that he's victorious. But we not only live or, or we're not only saved by the blood of Christ, we live by the blood of Christ too. In other words, here it is. We don't live for God. We live through God. Paul said it this way in Galatians 2. He said, From, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and through me. Which leads to the third and the final word. We conquer by the word of the testimony. As Christ lives his life through us, we testify to the world of our living Savior. Satan has already been defeated. We don't need to believe his lie when dark times come our way. We will overcome the lie by knowing the truth, who is Jesus Christ. The mark of God is invisible on our head and hand, and yet it's not invisible. Because through our testimony, through our thoughts, and through our actions we testify to Jesus every day and people ought to be able to see a difference people ought to be able to see us as people of hope in a hopeless world as people of light in a very dark world we give testimony to the fact we overcome the enemy by the word of our testimony we've heard testimonies of members joining this church and they were glorious we all have testimonies sometimes it feels like we're losing the battle in this world though you know, we're walking and, oh, Christians are being oppressed and, oh, man, we've got to hide out. No! This is the greatest time to ever live to take a stand for Christ and give people hope. Like in places like Africa and India, I say this almost every week, there's revivals happening because people who are oppressed by the government where it's illegal to name the name of Christ, they're saying, I stand for Christ. And when they do that, others who have been walking through a life of darkness, a regime of oppression, they see the difference that this new testimony makes. And they say, we want to follow that same God that you know because you are different. And there are revivals happening all around the world in oppressed nations because of testimony. God never promised that we won't escape persecution. In fact, he promised the opposite. 2 Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. 15, John 15, 
No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well, Jesus said. Matthew 5, blessed are you, in fact, when you're persecuted because of righteousness, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Revelation 12, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they went to their death testifying to Christ, for Christ. The light shines brightest in dark places. People see the difference in our lives. This is the story of Revelation. This is what we're called to in Revelation. It's not some jigsaw or or crossword puzzle trying to figure out the end times. It is how can we remain faithful in a broken and lost world that hates Jesus? How can we testify to him, for him, on his behalf? How can we, and that's, I want to end with this quote. Only God can turn a mess into a message a test into a testimony, a trial into a triumph, and a victim into a victory. And this is what the early church in Revelation experienced, and ever since then, when people are going through tests, they give testimony. When people are going through trials, they learn how to triumph because of, they are marked with a mark of the Lamb, and they are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you for this church and for those who are watching online, those who are present here today. Lord, would you unite us together? Would you make us shine bright in our community and world? Would you help us to love one another during these times of trial, and especially as heat continues to increase, it seems? Lord, um, bind us together, Lord. Unite us, I pray, so that we shine all the brighter for your sake. In Christ's name. Amen.